big part of it is the love of the land. I think that's what that's what it's all about. It all comes from the land to start with, and that's that's what it is—the love of the land to be out in the out in the open air and the fresh air, fresh air, and, and uh, see Mother Nature and watch the deer jump the creek. And you know, it's it's more than just uh, throwing seventy bushels of canola. You know, there's lots of there's lots of other gifts that come from. Uh, from farming, and that's what keeps me going. If if I didn't have my piece of ground a half an hour drive away, I'd, it would be a, it would be big trouble. I have a piece of ground there that's not for sale for any price, and my downtown smarties and the financial world think that's not true. It's true. If Warren Buffett comes along with 150 million dollars, what the hell am I going to do with 150 million dollars? You know, it's just not for sale. And city slickers just do not understand it. We just do not understand it. Land is. Uh, Land is land, and that's what that's what holds us all together. The land and the family are the two are the two big things. The Growing the Future podcast is brought to you by Aberhart Egg Solutions. Join us as we talk to top entrepreneurs in the agricultural space about their methods of obtaining success in their endeavors. And now, your host, Terry Aberhart. All right, so super excited today for another episode of Growing the Future podcast. And very, very excited to have the one and the only Les Henry with us today. Bit of a living legend in, in agriculture in the prairies here, especially in Saskatchewan. Les has been around for a long time as a, an extension and research agrologist, just worked at the University of Saskatchewan, sure taught a lot of young agronomists and farmers going through the college there, or university, a lot of amazing things. And I've had the pleasure of crossing paths with Les numerous times in, in my career and very excited to have uh, Les on the podcast today and and learn some of his insights from a very, very long and legendary career in, in agriculture. So welcome, welcome to the podcast, Les. Thank you, Terry, and thanks for being a part of this. I met Terry first at the Agritrend Farm Forums here in Saskatoon and always been uh, interested in the goings-on at Aberhart Farms. For sure. I, I definitely remember the first time we met. It was one of the first times they made a precision egg presentation in Saskatoon at the Farm Forum. And Les was in the back of the room and started drilling me with a bunch of questions. And honestly, I was kind of thinking at first, like, who is this guy? And, you know, what does he know about precision agriculture being the, politely the, the vintage that you're at? And, and then after the uh, presentation, you came up to me and started asking me more questions. And, and then I realized, like, oh, boy, I'm in a lot of trouble here. This guy really knows his stuff. And has uh, is, is asked me some really, really tough questions. But yeah, it was that was our kind of first encounter. And and since then, I've been following what Les has been doing. And many, many people in the industry would have read Les's book, Handbook of Soil and Water, which is kind of like an agronomist Bible for, for learning the basics of, of soil and water, which is a huge thing that, that affects crop growth and those kind of things. So very excited to be talking to you today and, and learn a little bit more about about your career and, and your history in ag. So it all started out on the farm at Milden. It was Brunswick Farm. My grandfather was on sand in Manitoba <clears throat> and he wanted to have gumbo, so he came to where it stuck to his boots. 
and that turned into a big rich farm and I was raised in a mansion. It was built in 1917 and they were going to be millionaires by 1930. By 1935, they were broke. <laughs> 1940, I was born, and I didn't know anything about the Depression from experience, but I did from my father. So I've always had a conservative bent because of that. So as I graduated high school, I spent two years on the farm, and it was a decent farm for the time, five quarters of land and some pasture and some cows. But I was young and rabby, and, you know, in a week I could have the crop in the ground, what am I going to do then? And Dad said, there'll never be another mortgage on this farm. And I, I agreed with that. So I went off to do other things. And I've never regretted that decision, but I've always been tied to the land. So when I went off to university, I'd been away for two years, and I really didn't know whether I'd make it or not. But to make a long story short, I did. That was 1960. And if you look at the graphs of fertilizer use in most of the developed part of the world, the, the graphs usually start about 1960. There was some fertilizer use on, in the States much earlier than that, on the prairies a little bit. But the serious use of fertilizer started in 1960. So I guess you could say that I've, I've, I've lived the growth of the fertilizer industry in this province. And the highlights along the way were probably graduating from university and heading off to be an ag rep district agrologist. They called an extension agent in Alberta. And I got called into the head of the soil science department. He said, what did they give you for money? 5000 bucks a year. That was a lot of money in those days. I'll give you that. You'll have to chase woke eggs around the lab in the winter. And you'll have to dig holes in soil serving in the summer, but you get a master's degree. So that, that, was, that was the turning point. So then I graduated and did, did a master's. But the, the big advance in soil science and soil fertility in Saskatchewan came in 1966 when the Saskatchewan Soil Testing Laboratory was opened. And Don Rennie was the uh, head of the department in those days. And we were hugely lucky at the university at that time. There was no bureaucracy. If you wanted something, you asked Rennie. He said yes or no, and away you went. That fall, in come all these samples pouring from Carrot River Soils and Carrot River Saskatchewan that were so deficient in potash that they wouldn't grow anything. So I was the field person, so out I went and laid these strip tests, and you see the picture in Henry's handbook. I often took the credit for that, but really the credit came to Ed Halstead. And that brings a fundamental point. In agriculture, you have to have the basic science, and you have to have somebody that takes that to the farm gate. And mine was, was the latter, but I've always had great respect and communication with other people. A lot of things I've been able to do is because there was somebody behind me that knew the basics better than I did. Remember, bless you sharing some of some of that information with me, and it's pretty it's pretty interesting to see how sixty years ago there's still people that that you know look at precision farming and, and variable rate as something that's still fairly new, but it was kind of a little mind blowing for me to see that already back in the sixties. You guys were testing these different areas of the fields and seeing the variation in nutrients and, and crop yield and potential back at that time. So you already had the understanding of the variability within the soils, but maybe not the equipment or the technology to, to manage it in field the way we do today. That's right. What happened at that time, one of my first jobs related to soil fertility was to look at, okay, we're going to tell people how to go out and sample their 40 acres or 80 acres 
you know, quarter section was a big field at that time. Usually it was 40 acres or 80 acres. So how are you going to sample this 80 acres? Well, how many samples are you going to take? How are you going to decide where to sample it? Well, if it's flat as a board, it's not that big of an issue. But much of the land is that. So we went out and uh, sampled the hilltops and the mid slopes and the lower slopes and, and see the differences were there. And the differences were huge. And one of the first things I remember is when you go in to one of these white sloughs that isn't salt, but it's highly leached, that we could go and take uh, 80 or 100 cores. We'd do grids and do 80 or 100 cores out of a field, and, and we'd have so many of these particular soil types, uh, the, the leach, the sloughs that are washed, the water goes in and washes out. And in the process, it washes a lot of nutrients with it, and they're a little bit acid. And they're very high in what we measure in phosphorus. But a lot of the uh, people before me were out on these, and they were doing actual small plot experiments on the hill and on, on the various slopes. They found that these still responded to the fertilizer. So our recommendation at the time was just leave them out when you're sampling. You want to sample the field. But we did have uh, some idea of what the fertility was of the various parts of the field, but there was no way to do it. There was an old disker that had a, a, an electric drive fertilizer, and you could sit on the seat and wheel the thing up and down and <laughs> up and down the hill, but it was pretty crude. There was no, there was no way to actually do it. And then when the, uh, when the capability came along to do it, the agronomy didn't always follow along with it, so there was a misfit between the... But I think those, a lot of those things have gotten worked out. Yeah, I love that. I think that a lot of times people get stuck in the mindset that precision has to be something really elaborate and high resolution and yeah. fancy and those kind of things, but there's a lot of different ways to apply those practices in a very practical way that make a lot of sense. Yeah, you don't always need... 10 or 15 separations in a, in a field. You have to find out what's significant and take it from there. But yeah, the other major uh, thing that came along, there's there's kind of milestones along the way, and some of them were things I was involved in and, and some I wasn't directly involved, but another milestone was, well, I guess the down milestone was 1970, and most of the people listening to this won't realize that 1970 was a year when the federal government had a program called LIFT, and it was lower inventories for tomorrow. That, that's where you got paid money to summer follow a piece of ground twice in a row, which uh, at, and at that time, Dr. Rennie, our, our boss, uh, really thought that was a, a big misstep. And in 1973, when I was away in Africa, he got up at the Farm and Home Week program before Crop Week and the Crop Production Show in Saskatoon, the university had a thing called Farm and Home Week that Everybody came to from all over the province. And that was where, if you had something major to say, that's where he said it. And uh, Rennie stood up in the Convocation Hall in the University in 1973, and he said, summer follows the, the single biggest mismanagement factor that we've had since we broke the ground. Well, the ricochet of that around, I, I heard it all the way to the slopes of Kilimanjaro. <laughs> yeah. It, it uh, raised quite a, quite a fluff. And, and that raises the point. You don't always have to agree with the crowd. And, and he didn't. And, and that was to the point where our professional organization called him on the carpet for that. And, and a lot of people t took, took umbrage. But it wasn't long before people realized, hey, we really don't need this. Uh, I mean, people were even summer following in your country, you know. Yeah. At that time, that was probably, it wasn't this, it wasn't half and half, but it was probably racy people were, were planted three in a row, you know. 
so that that was a major that was a major change and that's what led to it and uh, and when it came to changing from the old ways of summer following to the new ways and and particularly introducing the, the zero till concept there the credit has to go primarily to the farmers themselves we added things in terms of the soil fertility you might need and the variety people bring along the new varieties but the people that were sick of summer fallow were the ones that were sick of dust in the air in May. And uh, different people, Doyle Weeb, I remember talking about getting off a of cedar on, on a windy day in May and going into the house and said, there's got to be a better way. <laughs> and so it was farmers that drove. It wasn't John Deere in the big countries. It, the basics came of, of where the rubber hits the road, where the steel hits the ground. It was the farmers that figured out hey, we got to be able to do something where we can hold that in and see where it needs to be without having to stir it all up. For sure. And that just shows how much things can change over time. I mean, at, at one point in time, like you just mentioned about the summer fall, that was kind of a bit the Bible of the way things were done. And I remember when I was a kid, there was still some summer fall around. But by the time I was a teenager, a bit older and getting into farming, that was kind of the, the way of the past already. Like, I'm pretty sure... Holden, do you do you know what summer follow is? No. <laughs> I was there reading, you go. I, so, was, I was reading Les's article and said something about that, and I was like, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> so you know, and that's it's just interesting to see how when when Les was your age, summer follow just what everybody did, and and it was so summer follow farmers would plow the land or till the land for summer, they wouldn't crop it in order to conserve more each year and, and to uh, control the weeds because they didn't have as good a weed control methods back then. But they quickly began to realize that it was very poor for the soil health, for structure, you know, wind would blow the topsoil away and, and then zero till was invented and continuous cropping. So now, yeah, the younger generations don't even know what summer follow is. And it wasn't that long ago people thought you were crazy if you were going to try to go to zero till and eliminate summer follow. Yeah, well, the first, the first people that were doing that were everybody looked at them and how they're going to, going to fail. And some of the first air seeders, which was, were often used, weren't that great of drills too. So there were, there were some problems, but it was the farmers that brought the equipment that made it happen. But, well, there was... Uh, as you go through history, things change, and, and Elston Solberg is a colleague from Alberta that's founded a lot of pavement also, and, and he gave a talk one time, and he talked about something, and he said, learn and unlearn and relearn, and that's a, a phrase I've come to use use a lot. You know, you have you have norms, and then and then you have to forget about those. And I've always admired about you, Les, is you're you're very direct and to the point. You're very passionate. But also you, you have that mindset. Sometimes when people have spent a long time in their career, they become very confident and passionate, but also very instilled or entrenched in, in their beliefs. But And I believe you have very strong beliefs at times, but I also see that you're open to, to changes and, and what's new and you have an open mind as well. So what, what do you think it takes to, to have that type of mindset and, and still you know, be relevant and learning and, and open-minded to all the changes that you've experienced in your career? Well, you have to have a, a scientific kind of thinking where 
your conclusions are based on evidence. So you look at the evidence and the evidence is what you can find in the literature and what, what you what you gain yourself. So you, you have to get the, the new information and, and reject the old and take the new, but it has to be based on information. And it was it was said when we came into the computers that we were in the information age and and nothing is truer now. And and in today's world, when when I did my master's degree to do a literature review, you went to the library and you gathered up dozens of volumes. And out of the, each volume, you only needed three or four pages, that paper. And then eventually they had Xeroxes, and you could Xerox the three pages. Now I can sit here at this computer. And, you know, as an example, yesterday you got a communication from Manitoba. Would you do this international thing? And here's, uh, here's a person that's uh, involved in it. With, within a half an hour, I'd read the abstracts of this person from places all over the world. So the information age, the accessibility, and through the university, and, and I subscribe to all the American journals and, and uh, all the American information, pay a little money every year. And so I can get access to most journals just sitting here right at my computer. So there's no reason for people not to be informed. And you, you have to... You have to constantly be looking ahead and, and constantly learning new stuff and relearning old stuff. Sometimes I go back and find old stuff. Some of it I done I, that I did myself that I forget about. But anyhow, the, and the the other thing, there was another another milestone. And in the 1970s was a period of wet years, and that brings on what we've got now, and it's a thing called soil salinity. And it was, according to some, it was increasing at 10% a year. And we, some years down the road, we weren't going to have any land to farm. And we're basing it on a model that came from Alberta, a conceptual model I'm talking about now, that came from Alberta and Montana, where they had shallow depths of glacial deposits and they had underlying saline shales underneath. And so my job was to out in the country and, and farm meetings and deliver what we had to the farmers, but more importantly, to bring back from the farmers what, what the needs were. And I'll tell you about one in soil salinity. We had a very good extension agent in Moose Jaw. Johnny Hansen was his name. And uh, he said, Les, this salinity is a serious problem. We have to put on, and he came to me because I was extension agent, we have to put on a day's program in Moose Jaw. I said, Johnny, we don't know enough about it to talk for a day. No, we got to put on today's program. So I was there and two provincial specialists there and another two people from the university. So we were in a, in a downtown hotel in the basement. I could take exactly that room. And a, a young farmer got up and I could place him right in the room where he was. And he stood up after, you know, after three o'clock when we were having a general question session. And he said, you know, he said, you told us what we already knew. In language we couldn't understand and took all day to do it. <laughs> and he was right. <laughs> on the way home, I said to Randy, you know, we got to do things different. So I spent 18 months negotiating with the provincial bureaucrats and other funders and said, you know, we got to do a different approach. We got to be out on farms. We got to know why it's saline in the first place. And, and I don't want any committee. You know, give me the money and get out of my hair. And <laughs> so after 18 months, they did. So we started out, and we had the money to buy the right equipment, but we really didn't know what to do with it. So we hired uh, hydrogeologists and geologists as private consultants. And I got called on the carpet for that, too. Why are you hiring these guys? 
when we've got good ones elsewhere. I said, because when I ask Bill Merrill a question, I get an answer. But to make a long story short, we broke the thing wide open, and that was, was my greatest uh, thrill. So, so there's been a lot of fun along the way. So throughout your career, Les, I mean, you've, you've done a lot, of, a lot of things and helped, helped open up some of, these, some of these things for learning. I'm sure at times, especially with a bit of bureaucracy and levels of politics within university and government extension, there was probably a few times you got into some interesting debates or discussions over how to move the needle forward. Yes, except the times were different then. And, and I retired early. I was six days short of my 56th birthday. And that's because the bureaucracy was starting to, starting to rub. And in our day, we didn't have any serious bureaucracy that Rennie could deal with. He'd pick up the phone and deal with it, you know. So, and, you know, there was provincial and federal government, but you, you worked with the individuals and let them deal with, with their own bureaucracy. But it was having, having the freedom. Randy was, was my major mentor, and I remember in his declining years, we asked him, what's your single biggest positive feeling about the University of Saskatchewan? And he didn't hesitate a millisecond, and he said freedom. And that's what it was all about, was freedom. And we had freedom. And we just went and did it, you know, and the bureaucracy be damned. <laughs> that's the way it was. But I, 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 it doesn't seem to be that way anymore. But anyhow, we were, we were very lucky. Another, another project, there's a lot of discussion about irrigation in the last couple of days. And when the irrigation first opened up from Lake Diefenbaker in 1968, I think the first water was spilled onto land near Outlook. And they started to, these were dryland farmers go out and, and of course they do away with summer fall and they plant stubble. And so they used 40 pounds of phosphate on the summer fall and uh, 20 pounds of, 40 pounds of nitrogen maybe and 40 pounds of phosphate on stubble and uh, poured on all the water. And they still got the same yield they used to get pretty near, you know, so they wonder what this is all about. So we, we did uh, soil fertility work. And again, the first one they called was Ed Halston in the soil testing lab. And he went out that fall and took a simple six-foot chemical spreader, hung on the back of a half-ton truck and run by, run by a, a tire drive and spread nitrogen uh, down the fields and showed them that's what they needed. So we had a, a, a long series of experiments during the 70s. Some of this is in the scientific literature as well as the popular literature. And we sorted out what was, uh, what was really needed to grow an irrigated crop. So during those days, uh, I'd have two or three extension uh, meetings at Outlook each year. And after we got it all put together where we had a pretty coherent message for people. So Les, I have a question for you. You've, you've probably had some like crazy stuff happen to you in your career. What is like the craziest thing that's happened to like you in the field? Well, I remember being out, I don't know how crazy, but it's the things you remember. I was out in the irrigation area at Outlook, and we were out in the field in the spring of year with an old international panel truck, and it was a nice sandy soil. So we're driving across the, across the field, and all of a sudden, the thing just collapsed and went down, and we were in a mud hole, and I didn't see any mud hole. I thought I was smart enough to know how to keep out of a mud hole. So back we went to Crispin Vestry, and he had a nice new Volvo tractor, and he came out. I know where you are, he said. <laughs> he came out and pulled us out. So I, that was uh, one thing I remember. I was very, very embarrassed about uh, not being smart enough to 
know not to drive into a wet spot and get stuck. And there's been, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of travel-related stuff in in the uh, extension program. Extension program was a few field days in the summer, mostly research in the summer, but many miles of pavement in the winter. And in the winter, this was back in the 1970s. The roads were pretty good by that time. There were no cell phones, and there were no weather forecasts that were worth anything. So you had a radio in your car. That's all. So I remember taking off one day, headed to the town of Eyebrow, which is about two hours drive south of Saskatoon. You go straight down 219 Highway. I had a fairly new 77 Plymouth, big, big car for the day. And I was headed south of town and you had to go, the, the snow was blowing and you had no weather forecast. At the other end, there'd be a room full of farmers. You had to go. So the snow banks came. So I just hit the snow banks at 60 miles an hour and then the windshield all fogged up and you let that clear and you kept going and I eventually got there. By the time I got there I'd driven through the storm and uh, so there we were in the town of Ivor and sure enough the room was full of people and it was the old uh, movie theater. So the old movie theaters had a, had a stage and they had a uh, in front of that stage was about four feet off the off the floor and there was a big register there and that register was hooked into the coal-fired furnace from uh, the basement. And so the farmers were in there with their mitts on in the morning because it was so cold. The farmers at the back of the room and, and the janitor was down there shoveling coal into this furnace. And along towards noon, you'd, you could hear him scraping his shovel on the, on, the fur, on the cement floor. And I was standing up there giving my lectures right behind this, right in front of this uh, blasting out heat. So I said, would somebody please go down and break that old guy's arm? <laughs> I'm melting. So there was lots of lots of travel-related things and lots of times of driving home partway in the ditch because the road was too icy, take an old government car and let the air half out of the tires keep on driving. Lots of travel-related things that, that I remember, yeah. And lots lots of mistakes we made along the way too. It's funny nowadays with the amount of technology in your phones and Google Maps, People, you wonder how people survived before just driving wherever they had to go or plan ahead and those kind of things communicate with people. But so, what do you, Les? What do you see now today? I mean, obviously, you're retired, but you're you're very involved in in the industry yet, and still very active in writing articles and and learning and sharing your knowledge. What do you see today? Is is the things that are opportunities for for growers out there, and, and at the same hand, what what are what are most of us still missing that you look at and maybe shake your head and and think like, man, they you know we're still dealing with this, and we should be well beyond that by now. Well, the the big thing I think you know the one thing I think will always be around in the future. People talk about the family farm, and I think the family farm will be it. It'll be of different. It already is. You know, the family farm was. Uh, section of Regina heavy clay and a half section of pasture. And that was, that was fairly common, you know, and that's, that's morphed into what it is today. And, and uh, the family farm will still be the, the focus of it. It'll take various shapes, but I don't see any situation of some kind of a corporate structure. Like there's been many tries where you have a head office in 51st floor of downtown Toronto and you send all the grunts out to do the work and you have managers and all get the salary that, that isn't going to fit for agriculture because the first 
the first rule of farming is mother nature's charge. And the second rule is if you don't like rule one, don't farm, you know. And so that's what we always have to realize. We're dealing with dealing with mother nature. And mother nature goes in cycles. And we have to be always cognizant of beware the other side of the average. Now, I don't know whether the other side of the average is coming now, but but things do change. So I think the ones that win will be the ones that will be flexible enough to to see a change coming and, and, and react to it. But the family farm will be the will be the focus of it for sure. One thing, uh, the other another thing that I was lucky enough to do was when we were, and this was in the 80s, and 80s, the biggest thing was rainfall and the lack of it. In 1988, I drove from uh, Brooks, Alberta to Saskatoon in mid-August. And uh, when I got to Saskatoon, I said, two old Massey 90s would have combined all the wheat that was worth combining in all that er all that area. So, you know, there, the saw moisture was a big thing. So the first stubble saw moisture map was made in 1978. We were around doing fertilizer plots, and I was probing in the field just with a hand probe. And I could see that I could go into a field and I could probe once. This is the fall of the year. I could probe 100 times. I got the same answer. There's almost nothing else in, in a field that will be the same because in the fall, most of the rains are system rains, not, not thunder shower rains where one side of the quarter gets different than the other. I could dig a hole at Milton. I could drive 20 miles to, to Rostown. I'd get the same answer. So I thought if I had a decent rainfall map, I could make a soil moisture map as a freeze-up. And then farmers will have that to use in their planning all through through the winter. So I went around, and at that time, there was a grasshopper forecast map. It was on every elevator wall. At that time, there was 1,000 wheat pool elevators and how many others all over the place. So I, I went and gathered that up as, as the base map to use and did it all, and all the calculations were done by hand. I had the, the provincial government rainfall record, which was a very good one, still is, and uh, calculated all that, that all up by hand and uh, made up a legend uh, of what it would be. And for different soils, it was different because different soils hold different amounts of water. So, so I made this map up by hand, and I went into Rennie's office about 10 o'clock one morning and said, Rennie, this is what I've got. Oh, he took a look like this, and looked around. He said, if you can do that, put it on the elevator wall, we'll find money to, to make it happen, I think. That afternoon, coffee said, the money's in place. Go ahead. <laughs> that's how things were done in those things. So ever since, that's been a, a pet peeve of mine, is that people aren't using that in the planning enough. And my idea was not that this is going to be right on every quarter section of land, but it's a framework for the farmers and the agrologists, and now the agrologists that serve farmers, to think in when they're, when they're thinking about how they're growing the next crop. What have you got for resources there as freeze-up? Because what's there at freeze-up is still going to be there at springtime. It's going to be there until plant root takes it out. What else in agriculture have you got that can do that? And the idea is that, that people would be doing the probing. And, and uh, through years of experience, I've written at Grain News different times where I take a canola crop, for example, and and measure it and, and uh, keep a complete track. Like I just went out uh, to the farm a couple of days ago and, and uh, we started off with uh, a few inches, a couple of inches of available water down a little over a foot in the spring. And we haven't had any excess since, but we have had rains. 
So I went and the soil is basically at field capacity except for a few inches down around two feet and we're, and we're good to go. And nobody seemed to gather onto that concept. And now that has been done. The soil moisture probes are being used and a lot of people are putting soil moisture probes in and it's doing where, where these young agrologists can sit with their cell phone and, and tell the farmer exactly what moisture is left and what, what's going to happen to the crop. The one thing that is missing and still needs to be added to that, that's, this is a thing for the future, and I think it's pretty close. The one thing that we, we're in a dry climate, so we never really thought much about where's the water table and what does that, and this is a thing for the future. It's just, it's not done yet, and it needs to be done. That's one of the things in, in the soil moisture picture that needs to be done. And we never thought of the, there being a water table wasn't, wasn't a factor because it was, you know, somewhere six feet or below, and it just wasn't a factor. There was a, a very good, just did some experiments at Outlook one year, and, and he said there's upward movement over the winter. The water's moving upward winter. And, and Elche de Young, the soil physicist, who I used and still used as, as the scientific source to sort these things out, said, well, there must be a water table. So when the, these wet years started, on my farm, we had 20 inches of rain in, 1910, in 2010. 20 inches of rain, 10 inches of that was too much. We're getting stuck on sloughs that are up on top of the hill. And as, as soon as you got stuck, there's water in the combine truck. You know, that's the water table. So about 2012, I, t I take my farmer and neighbors, we go on to a soil tour and it hadn't rained for weeks. And the crop was growing like a horse and I could still put the soil probe in the ground. I said, you know, there's gotta be a water table here close. Oh, I can't be any water table. Sure enough, it was a little over four feet. So now I know that that's, that's a big factor. A lot of people are patting them on the back about 70 bushels, 80 bushels. And I had one guy tell me just two years at the crop show, said, you know, we grew 60 bushels of wheat on three inches of water. No, you didn't. You grew it on three inches of rain. The other 10 inches came out of the soil and, and the water table, it's like sub-irrigation. So that one has yet to be done. The, 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 the soil moisture probes are there. Uh, the water table wells are easy to put in. The materials cost 10 bucks. But it, where the technology, the role the technology is played, something you can put down there, bury it, leave it there, and then measure that measure that water table. That's the that's the next thing for for technology. Because uh, some of the farmers that I've read about in, in uh, newspapers and elsewhere that are using these, they're they're doing exactly that. And there was a quote of somebody talking about water in the soil is like money in the bank. I've been saying that for 35 years. To hear a young farmer from Wayland say that was was a very gratifying day. So that's one of the things for, for the future, yeah. There's, uh, you know, we, we can pretend to see the, the future when we get things like this thrown at us that's happening right now. It shows us that we really are not sure what the future is going to hold. But I think what has to be constantly in place is the resilience to adapt to whatever, whatever Mother Nature tells you. My, my, goal, my goal is that I... Uh, Drop dead on a combine was just enough to turn the thing off. You know, I got no time for sitting around on the on the Chesterfield drinking beer and watching TV. You know, there's got to be there's, there's got to be another ox to slay somewhere. You know, that's <laughs> that's the whole idea. And it's it's great thrill to be involved with up and coming people like yourself and the next generation sitting beside you there. That is go, is going to make things happen in in the future. It's been a lot of fun. So, Les, what are you excited to see in the future of agriculture? 
What I want to see is is the land be maintained in a condition so that you're going to pick it up better than than it was, and that is happening in your case and many others, and that the family farm remain the remain the focus of it, and that we continue to feed the feed the hungry world, and that young people will see the benefit of agriculture through the bad times as well as the good. When I was uh, ending my teacher teaching career in, in the early 90s, there weren't many jobs for agros, and there wasn't much money being made on farms. Uh, interest rates were high, and, and uh, markets were poor. And my advice to young people at that time was, go home and farm now. <laughs> well, you can buy land cheap. and, and uh, So I, I just hope that the industry stays vibrant and that we can I have no doubt that we can feed the hungry world somebody has talked about uh, the fact that we're never going to be able to feed the hungry world and Malthus said that 200 years ago I'm sure I'm sure we will I just hope that the the industry of agriculture can carry on and, and be allowed to do what it can do there's 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 some bureaucratic uh, blocks sometimes thrown in the road that shouldn't be uh, that the industry be allowed to do what we know how to do Les, I've always, I've always believed you should do what you love and, and love what you do. And in my mind, you're a, you're a perfect example of that. To see the, the passion and energy that you have still around the things that you're doing around agriculture is, is really inspiring. And I, I'm curious, what advice would you give to young farmers, young agronomists, the next generation well, a big part of it is the love of the land. I think that's what that's what it's all about. It all comes from the land to start with, and that's that's what it is—the love of the land. To be out in the out in the open air and the fresh air, fresh air, and, and uh, see Mother Nature and watch the deer jump the creek, and you know, it's it's more than just uh, throwing seventy bushels of canola. You know, there's lots of there's lots of other gifts that come from. Uh, from farming, and that's what keeps me going. If if I didn't have my piece of ground a half an hour drive away, I'd, it would be a, it would be big trouble. I have a piece of ground there that's not for sale for any price, and my downtown smarties in the financial world think that's not true. It's true. If Warren Buffett comes along with 150 million dollars, what the hell am I going to do with 150 million dollars? You know, it's just not for sale. And city slickers just do not understand it. They just do not understand it. Land is. Uh, Land is land, and that's what that's what holds us all together. The land and the family are the two are the two big things. So when you look when you look forward to what's going to happen in the next fifty to hundred years in agriculture, what do you think are going to be some of the biggest things that are going to change, revolutionize the way we farm? Well, there's going to be some fundamental things. Some of the things that are going on in in plant breeding and plant nutrition, there'll be some breakthroughs uh, there. But for every for every real breakthrough, there's a there's a dozen, you know, like the whole issue of biologicals replacing some of the things we do, you know, some of those things have been peddled for many years and some of them work, but most of them don't. Other than rhizobium bacteria with, with legumes, there hasn't been that much. Uh, some of them work very well in a, in a growth room setting or a lab setting and peter out when they hit the field, but some of those eventually will, will come along. There'll be, uh, you can't really see the future you can only think about it you can't really see what things things evolve as as it goes on there just needs to be enough right man's to do it what 
what needs to be maintained is the connection with the with the academic world and the actual what goes on at the farm field. If there's some places where that's gotten a little little weak, it has to be the two has to be tied in together. It has to be it has to be able to work at the farm level, or it's it's not uh, it's not really going to do anybody any good. But the technology is great. The, the information is great. I just can't believe what I can. Like you t- give me the northeast to 34, 59, 29, or any location, and in an hour's time, I can tell you a lot about this just sitting here in front of my computer. And that that will only get easier as, as time goes on. There's more information and more, particularly the the uh, visuals, the air photos and satellite images that you can get. And there's uh, all kinds of things you can find out about a piece of ground without before you ever go to see it. I think, as you mentioned, all that, all the information is out there, the, the tools, the data, it, it takes people like yourself that, that can help connect that and, and make sense and have something that makes sense to a farmer that he can use, whether it's a soil moisture map or whatever it may be. And so I think that's where the disconnect is a lot of times between technology or, or new opportunity with agriculture is the, the opportunity is really powerful, but you need those those people that have the ability to take that information and simplify it down into something usable and relevant to the farmer and to the industry. Yeah, and that, that's what I did. Truth be known, <laughs> I shouldn't really say this, but I guess if I'm known for one thing, it's taking complicated concepts and putting them into something that uh, people can understand. There was one about wilting point that Donnie Flayton talked about here one of the publications, some will remember it, and I won't go over it now, but but truth be known, I had to boil it down to something simple to understand it myself. So <laughs> some of the things I've gotten credit for have been because, uh, you know, some of these concepts I have trouble dealing with myself. And and, and still, like, with uh, for example, the water table thing, when, when I came to that water table, the question was, if a soil's at field capacity to the water table, and you add an inch of water, how much is the water table going to come up? I didn't know that isn't in Henry's handbook. That's that's a that's a, a rule of thumb that should be in Henry's handbook. It was because I didn't know it at the time. Didn't know anything about the water table. I learned that all on my own farm by myself. But I didn't really know how to convert that. So I, I consult Elcher Dion. He was a Dutchman by birth, and he took his PhD at Miguel, and, and he came when I was doing my grad school, and, and he he was my source of information on anything soil water all my years, and still is to this day. Yeah, for sure. A great example of that I know you've been working uh, with the crew at Crop Intelligence there too. But like you say, now nowadays um, they have a great program for the weather stations and, and the moisture probes. And really, all all they're doing is taking information that was already there and available, but displaying it in a very simple way to help a grower make better decisions. And and I think most times, even even us as agronomists and farmers gets hot and it's windy and it hasn't rained for a while, but we forget about how much capacity is in the soil and that there's still a lot of yield yieldability there because of the, the soil stored moisture in the soil and, and what's there depending on the year. And really that's probably as big or in many cases a bigger factor on your yield potential than what you do get during during the season, depending on what type of season you have. But again, it's just a great example of taking information that and the concepts that have really been there for years, but creating a system to simplify that into data that you can make really great decisions with. 
Right, and there's another example that I should give, and this is this is a future thing for sure. In today's world, everybody's treating CO2 like a villain, you know? Bury the stuff. What do we want CO2 for? Our biggest plant nutrient is carbon. When we talk about the plant nutrients, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen come from air and water, so CO2 comes out of the air. We pat ourselves on the back that we've got new varieties, new equipment, and we're growing 70 bushels of canola and we're 80 bushels of wheat. Of that 70 bushels of canola, probably 15 of it comes from the fact that we got 400 ppm CO2 instead of 300. So uh, a big part of our, our uh, a significant, maybe not big, but a significant part, and there's data to prove it. There was uh, work done in Australia with, with bees, and it showed and they have places, you can do it, and most greenhouses juice up the, the CO2 in the greenhouse to get better growth. That's just, just part of the business. But there's ways uh, where you can do it in the field, too, and that's been worked out for years. And there was work in Australia with peas, and they found that when you brought the CO2 up to 500 or more, I forget the exact level, there was a 20% increase in the yield of peas. But, gee, some varieties had a little bit lower protein, and so we should do a breeding to get these varieties sorted out. Nobody says anything about 20% increase in yield. It's huge. It's huge, and so someday people are going to realize that CO2 isn't a, isn't a villain. CO2 is our biggest plant nutrient, and we can pat ourselves on the back for all the goals, but a significant part of our high yields is because we've got 410 ppm of CO2 instead of 310 when I was teaching. So that's something that eventually that, 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 eventually that will, be, will be sorted out. Well, and this is really about, you know, turning challenges into opportunities, right? And so with that, Les, I'm just curious for you. I always like to ask this question, but the theme of the podcast is growing the future. And so what does is, what is growing the future mean to you? Well, I don't know. Next uh, Wednesday is my 80th birthday, so I don't know how much future I've got. The last four generations of my line of Henry's died somewhere between age 80 and 82, but for me, the future's, uh, I don't care how much future is, is, as long as I live until I die. And uh, for me, the future is continuing to keep in touch with what's going on, to change things where I can. But still like to, I still like to go to graduate seminars, although the world's shut down and there isn't any of those kind of things, but go places. And, and so for me, I just want to be able to uh, live my life and enjoy my family and my land and make a difference where I can, and, and, and continue to learn. When, when you figure you know it all, you might as well dig a hole and crawl in. You know, there's, there's no time you know it all. There's always, always new things to, to learn and, and new, new wrinkles on old themes. So I just look at able to be involved and, 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 and make a difference and, and, and get excited about something. When you can't get excited about something, well, there's not much point. So that's the, for the, I don't know how much future I've got, but what I hope to do is make the most of whatever future I do have. That's awesome. Well, Les, you've always been a, a big inspiration to me. I love, love the passion. I love the energy that you have. And, and uh, yeah, it's just been a, a great inspiration. It's been an honor. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us. And, and my goal was to hopefully capture some, some of that inspiration and experience that you've had over the years and, and inspire others as, as well as even inspired inspired us here today. So I really, really appreciate having the opportunity to, to spend some time with you on the podcast and appreciate you coming on. 
Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been a great honor for me. Thanks for listening to the Growing the Future podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for highlights of the show. Also, full-length videos of the show are available on our website, www.growingthefuturepodcast.ca, and on YouTube. We would very much appreciate if you took the time to visit our sponsor, Aberhart Egg Solutions at aberhartagsolutions.ca, where you can find innovative solutions that transform your farm. Thank you.